Good morning. So for the first time in the last 15 years, I numbered my pages. Pretty, yeah. Yeah. I love you. Uh, so next week, uh, next Monday, uh, Grace, or not Grace, uh, from Grace Church, uh, Hutch Garmony is going to be in chapel next Monday. And then, uh, yeah, and Wednesday is going to be the first uh, day, the first two of our senior testimonies. Um, come out, they'll be great. Ima, Ima Umo, and Daniel Lloyd will be speaking. Yeah. So, stories have signposts. Uh, if I were to say to you, kind of run off these cities, uh, Pasadena, Flagstaff, Albuquerque, Amarillo, Oklahoma City, Wichita, Kansas City, that would likely mean very little to you. But for me, that will forever tell the story of the time that uh, our family took an unexpected road trip with two of our dear friends, um, one of which was heavy with child. Uh, turned out we were on our way home from uh, California. We were flying to my folks' house in Kansas City. We got to the airport, and we saw two of our close friends who just live a couple of streets over, and we sat and talked to them for a while. And as we talked, um, we were just kind of engaged in our own discussion. They hadn't called our flight yet, and we looked back and realized that there's a, a line of, of really over 100 people. Turns out they canceled the flight, so um, because it's kind of how we roll, we decided that we would all road trip. So we hurried home, got in our cars, uh, and took off and we drove from uh, Pasadena to Kansas City. So that story, I mean, that time, um, I'll always remember uh, going through those cities, those signposts. And when I think of the time, I remember that, that initial rush, like, are we actually going to do this? Are we really going to drive right now to Kansas City? It's roughly a 30-hour 30, 30 drive or so. Um, I'll remember the time we, uh, we came through uh, Flagstaff, and watch the temperature on our dashboard drop incrementally as we dip down into the little valleys, and then it would come up a little bit as we go up, but it's dropping from you know, 40 to 38 to 37 to 36, gets down into the 20s. Um, I'll remember the breakfast at Denny's where um, our dear pregnant friend ate like more eggs than I've ever seen a human being consume uh, in real life. And then we got to Kansas City at 3 a.m. on the second day after 17 days of driving together, and we parted ways. Um, but it told a story. It was, it was a time that I will always remember. Uh, and genealogies uh, are somewhat similar. Genealogies, they tell stories. They are the history of events that with time become stories. But before they became genealogies and stories, they were the substance of smiles and tears and prayers. They're the narratives of real people who live real lives. And sometimes genealogies are more than that. So we're going to approach the greatest of the genealogies. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 1 today, the genealogy of our Savior Jesus, the greatest story. And as we sit between Easter and Pentecost, I thought it would be fun to back up and look at the lineage of the Messiah, look at the story that it tells and its word to us as we reflect on the accomplished work of Jesus. So, from Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, 
Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, um, <laughs> no, that's not right, Aminadab, there it is, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to the Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud, Abahud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathon, Mathon, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is actually the word of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray for one moment. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have shared this story with us, that you have revealed it to us. And pray, Father, that you might speak to us through it now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you read 14, 14, 14 generations, and you can hear it. You, you almost want to speed up, blow by people, but those were real people, every single one of them, who lived real lives, who had real struggles and real joys. But as we enter into the story, three things we want to keep, or two things really we want to keep in mind when we look at this. Um, the narrative that we've just been given, this genealogy is broken up into three sections of 14 generations. The first section reaches from Abraham to David. It's the story of the rise of God's people from Palestine and the patriarchs to the Egyptian captivity and the Exodus and then God's deliverance into the promised land. That's the first 14 generations. The second section is from David to Jeconiah. The section follows the kings of Israel, the earthly kings that the people so badly wanted, but then we watch as they lead Israel into decline and captivity and into the shame of exile. The third section, the third 14, follows Israel's return to their land, the rebuilding of Jerusalem and God's temple and leads up to the birth of the Messiah. So we have these three distinct pictures of 14 generations. Um, and Matthew has constructed them with a very distinct and intent, uh, distinct purpose in doing so. Um, we'll see why, but, but really why the 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. I think it actually has to do with David's name and the way it was spelled. Um, the 14 is the numerical value of David's name. And Matthew is in every way pointing to the fact that Jesus is in fact in the line of David. Now it's also important to remember as we're reading that when it says, was the father of, 
doesn't necessarily mean the immediate relationship of dad and son, but it often means something more akin of was the ancestor of. So the genealogy is created very purposefully. There's structure and intention, but what sits at the bottom of it is that God wants us to know this story. So we start off. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it begins exactly as you would suspect. The genealogy of the Messiah begins with the names that most evoke the glory of Israel, David and Abraham. David, the kingly line of the Messiah, and Abraham, the father of our faith. It was to Abraham that God covenanted and promised that descendants would one day cover and bless the earth. And it was through David's royal line that the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, was to come, the royal line that was never, ever to be extinguished. So as we begin, the tone looks like it's set. These two great names are referenced. The first 14 generations are going to tell the story of God's people from Abraham to David, who was the king after God's own heart. So here we go. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. It begins to unfold. The beginning of the Messiah's genealogy is the foundation of the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, and it specifically focuses on Judah and his brothers, focuses on Judah from which the royal tribe would form and the line of David would emerge. So it's clean. So far it's clean and it's expected. Abraham, David, and now we go to the, the 12 brothers, the beginning of the 12 tribes, and we go to Judah, the royal line. We keep going. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of, Mab of Mab <laughs> I've said it so many times. Aminadab. The father of Aminadab is the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. So we move on from Jacob's sons, and we find almost 400 years elapse between Perez and Aminadab. Some names are left out, but we still have the story that God wants us to have. We meet these twins, Perez and Zerah, whose mother is Tamar. Then we get a number of minor characters we know almost nothing about. Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon. And then we come to the name Boaz. He's the son of Rahab, the kinsman redeemer of the faithful woman, Ruth, who married and loved her and cared for her. And first century readers would have immediately known that he was the great-grandfather of King David. And then we have Jesse, the father of King David. Even with names like Abraham, David, Jacob, Judah, and Boaz, something else would have caught the early reader's attention and it should catch ours. And it's these three names, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Most genealogies, most ancient genealogies at least, tended to be all male. So to see women featured so prominently is somewhat surprising. But what's more surprising is the particular woman, women who are named. They're not the patriarchal wives. It's not Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. But instead, it's three Gentile women two of whom are surrounded by things that are at least morally questionable. So from the very beginning, Matthew makes it clear 
And God wants us to remember that the line of the Messiah is anything but neat and tidy. The family tree, instead of picturing a super clean, like, um, pine tree, is more like a gnarled old oak tree. And Matthew shows it, and God shows it, by including these three women in the line. And we can just say the women, but we want to remember, who are they? What were their actual stories? And the first, Tamar. Tamar is a Gentile Canaanite woman. She was left childless by two husbands who had died. They were both Judah's sons. And they were Judah, the royal line from which David is going to spring. He had a daughter-in-law named Tamar. And two of his sons died while married to Tamar. So in her grieving, she is waiting to continue to be cared for because that's how it worked. And Judah was to provide another son. But Judah deems that it's not worth his other sons and that he's not going to allow them to marry her, which essentially means that she will be on her own. So what does she do? Tamar dresses like a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law, Judah, to sleep with her. Later, he chastises her for being pregnant out of wedlock. She reveals that he's the father, and it makes him realize that she was more just and loyal to God's law than he was. So we have that story, but think about the woman and think about her life. She was a woman who was married to a husband, and he died. She knew the grief and the sorrow, and then she was married again with the hope that maybe she would be cared for and loved again, and he died. And then, instead of being cared for and loved, she's cast out. So she takes this action that we would think of as being wildly sinful. She dresses like a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law, and it's not godly. But in the action, he sees her justness before God made him look bad. Then we have Rahab, another outsider, another Canaanite, this time, an honest-to-goodness real prostitute. Now, it was by her help that the Israelite spies were able to conquer Jericho. A real woman who cared most for her family when she found out God was coming and God was going to judge, she wanted her family to be protected and cared for. And then Ruth. Ruth's an outsider again, a Moabitess, a line initially descended from incest, who cares for her mother-in-law when her husband dies, leading to the deep respect of Boaz, who marries her, and they have a son, Obed, who will be the grandfather of King David. Gentiles, real people with real messes in the line of Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the Savior, foreshadowing that when he would come, he would extend life to all people, Jew, Gentile, real people, real broken people, every ethnicity, every sin. So the first 14 generations ends with the rise of the nation of Israel, the throne of David, the picture of the line that would never end. David then was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, 
Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And those names are kingly names. It begins with the inclusion of another woman. This time, she's named as Uriah's wife. And her story recalls one of the most horrific betrayals, I really think, in all of history. King David betraying his loyal soldier, Uriah, because he had impregnated Uriah's wife. David sends him out onto the field of battle and sets it up to make sure that he will die. And it signals the devastation that is to come in the line of David. Because what follows is a list of 14 kings. The names that I read mean maybe little to us now. They had great meaning then. They were the human kings that the people of Israel had so desperately wanted. They weren't content with God the Father being their king. They wanted to be like those around them. So they have kings. 14 kings listed here. These 14 kings led them into idolatry and destruction and captivity. Of the 14, two of them were were faithful to God, Hezekiah and Josiah. Four of them were at times obedient, but were deeply flawed and often less than faithful, Asa, Uzziah, Jothan, and David. Eight of them, though, did evil in the eyes of God. They were idolaters, they were murderers, They were power-hungry. Two of them, Ahaz and Manasseh, even practiced child sacrifice and burned their own children alive in sacrifice to false gods. These are the kings of God's people, those called to lead the people anointed by the living God, sacrificing by burning alive their own children to these false gods. The inclusion of the women may have been surprising in the first section, but the inclusion of these kings is even more surprising. As we ask why the women would be included, we do the same with the kings, and the answer is this. The genealogy continues to tell a story, a real story with broken lines, with good and evil, with everything that lies in between. And that everything comes to the point where the throne of David gets vacated. His authority is destroyed And it looks like the promises of God will be thwarted. The hope of the first 14 generations that end up with David is literally replaced by sadness and judgment. But the story is not over. And we come from the first set of 14 with hope, the second set of 14, to downfall and captivity in Babylon. God's people have been taken captive. And now we have the third set of 14, the hopeful road if you will, to restoration. And it begins with salvation from exile. God brings the Israelites back to Jerusalem from Babylon. Hear this. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Shealtiel and Zerubbabel help rebuild the temple. And you would almost expect from there things to continue to build for the better. They've been in Babylonian captivity. Now they're being released. They come back to Jerusalem. Shealtiel and Zerubbabel begin to rebuild the temple. Things are good. And in the genealogy, it feels like it's doing this. It's going to keep amping up and amping up. But instead, it just kind of disappears. Hear this. Zerubbabel is the father of Abihud. Abihud is the father of Eliakim, who's the father of Azor, who's the father of Zadok, 
who's the father of Achim, who's the father of Elihud, who's the father of Eleazar, who's the father of Methan, who's the father of Jacob. And we know absolutely nothing about any of those people. They're wonderfully, beautifully anonymous. We know nothing. They have no historical significance other than the fact that they're listed here in the genealogy of Jesus. You might as well say that their names are Darren Schott, Robert Manassero, Doug Campa, Gerald Nakamura, who were, by the way, guys on my eighth grade breakdancing team. <laughs> we were the shadow dancers. <laughs> it's so sad, that's a true story. <laughs> uh, they were truly anonymous. Uh, we know nothing about them. As you know nothing about my eighth grade breakdancing team. Uh, but then as you continue, you come to the names Jacob, who's the father of Joseph, who's the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Joseph, who stands in the line of David, and such um, as he does, so will his son. And we meet his wife Mary, the final woman in the story, a woman who's found favor with God, the woman who would give birth to the Son of God. So this crescendo of hope, the final path to restoration, is peopled with great names and royal pedigrees, no, it comes through a line of unknowns. The final chapter of the Messiah's line is made up of people like you and I, people who will likely have maybe tiny footnotes in history, but probably 50, 100 years from now, you say my name, no one will know who that was, and that's okay. People like us. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So we look at this genealogy, and the truth is we all have genealogies, and our genealogies are pieces, they're parts of our stories. But rarely do our ancestors tell the most foundational or the most immediate part of our stories, right? I just found out recently that I'm 1 16th Native American, 1 16th Cherokee, which is cool, um, but it in no way really informs my life here and now. We likely know very little about the depth of the mess that our ancestors experienced or of the loveliness of the beauty that they knew. But when we look at the genealogy of Jesus, God opens it for us. He opens the genealogy of the Son of God, and he invites us to see the real mess of the real lives that were in his line. He invites us to see the consequences of sin. He invites us to see the humble and the unknown names that were very real people. And then we see that it's all woven together so that we might better understand the most beautiful story, the story of Jesus. And I think he allows us to see the ugly and the dirty and the mess and the humble because the reality is that his story is our story. We are a part of that story. Every one of us has a family tree. In Christ, all of our family trees lead back to the cross where our names are written because it's there that Jesus died in our place 
taking our sins and the judgment we rightly deserved upon himself so that we might be made sons and daughters. So that our genealogy, being really honest about it, is not from my father to me, not my dad, Bob Lowe. But if you were to look at our true genealogies, it would be God the Father of Grant. God the Father of you. That's our genealogy. That's our true identity. It's who we really are. He is our Father. Instead of feeling like I don't belong in the family of God, which I don't, God shows me Tamar and David and Amon and Abihud, broken, kingly, deeply flawed, and people we know nothing about. And he reminds us that we belong as they did, not because of us, but because of Jesus. Because our brother and our savior, he weaves out of our broken stories his most triumphant story. So pull back and look at your life. Know what your true family tree is. That you have an earthly father by the grace of God, but that your true genealogy is God. The father is your father. It's not broken up into tons of pieces. It's direct from God the father to you. And he is in the process of writing the wonderful, beautiful, broken, joyful, sad lives that we live into his glorious story. And when he returns, when he comes back triumphant, bringing him with him all of the angels, when the dead are raised, when we are given our glorious, triumphant, eternal bodies, the story will be made whole. The genealogy will have reached its completion. So be encouraged. This is who we are. This is the genealogy that we belong in, but not because of what we've done, because of what Christ has done, and because Christ conquered sin and death so that we might have life and have it in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do not hide the brokenness of the world from us. We're grateful, Lord, that you show us the people in the genealogy of Jesus that were sinful and broken. Uh, some that were uh, called kings while here on earth and some that we know nothing about. We thank you, Father, that we stand in that same line. that We stand redeemed as your children adopted by you. Father, we thank you that we call our Savior brother. Lord, be with us now. Give us strength. Give us perseverance. And give us wisdom that we might look on this genealogy, that we might look to the world about us, that we might think on the things that are lovely and beautiful, that are holy and righteous, and that might, we might become more and more like you. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace.